you. Well, I want to invite you to open up your Bibles to Luke chapter 24. And part of our study today will include the first 12 verses of Luke 24. And those, of course, were read at the beginning of our service by Francis. And our study and preparation for this message really began on Friday evening at our Good Friday service. And if you were here for that service, let me just say that you have a little bit of a head start. And if you weren't here, don't worry, we're going to go ahead and catch you up. I included the outline from Friday in your notes and expanded on the final point in an attempt to keep these messages tied together. These chapters in the Gospel of Luke have two major uh, and, and critical uh, doctrines embedded within them. And we, we don't want to miss them. And if you, if you were here on Friday, then you were introduced to the first doctrine, which is related to death, called penal substitution. And then, of course, today we're going to celebrate the doctrine of life, known as the resurrection. And thus we have a message title that I shared Friday is one of the longest that I have ever written. The sobering wounds of our suffering substitute and the hope found in his resurrection. And I tried in every way that I could to, to make that title smaller, but every single word is important. Now since it won't be possible to review everything that we talked about on Friday as it relates to our suffering substitute, to appropriately set the stage for the resurrection, I do think it would bless us to read the fuller context for our celebration today. So let's begin by reading Luke 23, starting in verse 13, and I'm going to read to the end of the chapter just to provide our context. Luke 23, 13 and I'll read quickly. Pilate summoned the chief priests and the rulers and the people and said to them, You brought this man to me as one who incites the people to rebellion. And behold, having examined him before you, I found no guilt in this man regarding to the charges which you take against him. No, nor has Herod, for he sent him back to us. And behold, nothing deserving death has been done by him. Therefore, I will punish him and release him. Now he was obliged to release to them at the feast one prisoner. But they cried out altogether, saying, Away with this man, release for us Barabbas. He was the one who had been thrown into prison for insurrection made in the city and for murder. Pilate, wanting to release Jesus, addressed them again. But they kept calling out, saying, Crucify him, crucify him. And he said to them the third time, Why, what evil has this man done? And they found him in no guilt demanding death. Therefore, I will punish him and release him. But they were insistent with loud voices asking that he be crucified, and their voices began to prevail. And Pilate pronounced sentence that their demand be granted. And he released the man they were asking for who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, but he delivered Jesus to their will. When they led him away, they seized a man, Simon of Cyrene, coming in from the country and placed him on the cross to carry behind Jesus. And following him was a large crowd of the people, and women were mourning and lamenting him. But Jesus turning to them and said, Daughters of Jerusalem, stop weeping for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren, and the wombs that never bore, and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say, To the mountains fall on us, and to the hills cover us. 
For if they do these things when the tree is green, what will happen when it is dry? Two others also who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place called the skull, they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right and the other on the left. But Jesus was saying, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they are doing. And they cast lots, dividing up his garments among themselves. And the people stood by, looking on, and even the rulers were sneering at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself, if this is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming to him, offering him sour wine, and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. Now there was an inscription above him. This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged there was hurling abuse at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other answered, rebuking him, and said, Do you not even fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed are suffering justly, for we are receiving what we deserve for our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And he was saying, Jesus, remember me, when you come in your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. It was now about the sixth hour, and darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour, because the sun was obscured, and the veil of the temple torn in two. And Jesus, crying out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. Now then the centurion saw what had happened. He began praising God, saying, certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds who came together for this spectacle, when they observed what had happened, began to return, beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the women who accompanied him from Galilee were standing at a distance, seeing these things. And a man named Joseph, who was a member of the council, a good and righteous man, he had not consented to their plan and action, a man from Arimathea, a city of the Jews who was waiting for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. And he took it down and he wrapped it in linen cloth and laid him in a tomb cut into the rock where no one had ever lain. It was the preparation day and the Sabbath was about to begin. Now the women who had come from with him out of Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. And they returned and prepared spices and perfumes and on the Sabbath, they rested according to the commandment. And we'll stop here. And this is so important because those that weren't here on Friday didn't have the, con- you won't have the contacts if we don't read this. There are seven truths that God would have us consider as we prepare to celebrate this weekend. And they're laid out for you nicely in your outline in the bulletin. The first six are related to the doctrine of penal substitution. And on Good Friday, I shared what this doctrine means, and it helps to look at each word individually. First, Christ's death was penal in that he bore a penalty when he suffered and died. God the Son paid the penalty for the sins of mankind, especially for those who would turn by faith to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Second, Christ's death was also a substitution and that he was a substitute for repentant sinners when he suffered and died. And we're all familiar with that concept. Most of us experience, if you were raised in a school system, you would have a substitute teacher. They weren't, they, they, they weren't the, the real teacher. They were a substitute. 
And Christ's death covers the penalty of sin when he died and served as the ultimate substitute for our sin. And on Friday, we even looked at how Christ's death met the needs that we have as sinners. And then we covered a synopsis of the first five truths. The doctrine of penal substitution is actually the driving force behind what is commonly referred to as limited atonement. And the word atonement means a covering of forgiveness. And so some have asked, did Jesus' death on the cross cover the sins for everybody in the entire world that would ever live? And the answer to that question is yes and no. Yes, in a general or sufficient sense, but no, in a specific or efficient sense. In order for Christ to effectually be a person's substitute, they have to respond to the gospel. They have to place all of their faith, all of their heart, all of their trust into him for salvation for their sin. If it, we talked about this on Friday. If a person rejects the suffering substitute, who has to pay the penalty? Someone does. Someone's going to be held accountable. Romans 14, 12 says each of us will give an account of himself to God. And if we don't trust in Christ by faith and, and turn to the substitute, then we must pay the penalty for our own sin. Did Jesus, did Jesus ever sin? No, never. A favorite verse of many, 2 Corinthians 5, 21. God the Father made him who knew no sin to be sin so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And we could actually say it this way as we think about the context of his penal substitution. God the Father made him who knew no sin to be the penal substitute. And for those of us who believe to be our penal substitute. Christ is the only substitute. And we see the dynamics of his suffering substitution reflected in the first six truths in your outline. Christ's crucifixion is the pinnacle of his suffering substitution. Not only did he suffer greatly beforehand by being uh, mocked and being denied, being betrayed, being falsely accused, all those wounded him deeply, right? But we, we shared on Friday night that the, the, the greatest wound that was ever inflicted on Christ was when God the Father turned his back on his very own son. In the Gospel of Matthew, it records the painful expression in Jesus' own words. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? For the first time in all of history, including all of eternity past, God the Father turned his back and forsook his very own son. And the Lord Jesus Christ, for, for the first time, felt what it was like not to have presence, not to have fellowship with the Father. Instead of uh, fellowship with the Father and the Holy Spirit, 
He was made to feel the, the darkness and the depth of sin. The full weight of despair. In place of the Father was the full fury and burning inferno of wrath. No Father to embrace. No Holy Spirit to comfort. No fellowship of the Godhead whatsoever. This was the pinnacle of his suffering. But the sixth truth in your outline is of critical importance. It is the culminating event of his penal substitution, and it provides a critical context and a vital backdrop to our celebration of the resurrection today. Our Lord was wounded to the grave. This is the final stamp of approval, if you will. In order for Christ to be the suffering substitute, he had to die. If the wages of sin is death, and it is, then in order for him to be the substitute, he would have to die. And if he didn't die, then he would not be qualified to be our suffering substitute. And this is hard to imagine. But even if all the sufferings and all the ways that were wounded, he was wounded before the cross were to come into play, even if he was scourged a hundred times over, even if he was denied and mocked and insulted, and you could add any number you want in front of that, millions of times. I mean, even what occurred is incomprehensible. His penal substitution would be incomplete without his death. And so the question needs to be asked, was he really dead? And how can we know for certain? Well, I want you to turn with me to the Gospel of John, chapter 19. And the Gospel account of John provides the best description and we'll start in verse 31 of John 19. It says this, Then the Jews, because it was the day of preparation, so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. Stop here for a minute, just to make sure that you accurately understand what's taking place. The primary cause of death on the cross is asphyxiation. It's suffocation. Okay? And yeah, there was a lot of blood loss for those that were scourged beforehand and when, they're, when they were pierced on the cross, there was blood loss and that all contributes to death when the primary cause is asphyxiation. So I want to make sure that you understand that what this verse is not saying is that they were like, well, we'll break their legs and then we'll take them down while they're still living and then they'll die at a later point. That's not what occurred. They, while they were still hanging on the cross, they would bring clubs by and they would literally fracture their legs so that they could no longer push down on the stipe with the nail in front of it to support themselves. So this is what we're going to see happen right here. Look at verse 32. So the soldiers came, broke the legs of the first man and of the other who was crucified with him. But coming to Jesus, when they saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, 
and immediately blood and water came out. And he who has seen has testified, and his testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling you the truth so that you may also believe. This is the Apostle John who witnessed this happen with his very own eyes. He was there, all right? He's also superintended by the Holy Spirit. But John is saying right here in verse 35, I was there, very reflective of how he even starts out his epistle in, in 1 John, right? About seeing and touching and feeling. If the scripture says that Jesus was physically dead, then he was physically dead. And the Holy Spirit has also testified to its accuracy. Remember, virtually everyone but the disciples wanted Jesus dead. The scribes wanted him dead. Pharisees wanted him dead. Roman governing officials wanted him dead. The angry mob, the crowd, an eclectic group of people wanted him dead. And they got their wish. But little did they know what the sovereign plan of God had in store. Christ was taken down. He was uh, taken by Joseph of Arimathea. It says that Nicodemus also went with him. They placed Jesus in a tomb that had never been occupied before. Okay, <laughs> The details of the resurrection, the account is so airtight. There's no possibility of there being another body in there, that there would be any confusion. Every detail is accounted for. They would lay him in the tomb. And the Jews were concerned that his disciples were going to come and they were going to steal the body and then say that he is risen. So they go to Pilate in, in Matthew 27 and they ask Pilate and they say, Will you assign guards to make sure? And he, not only was it secured, but it says that, the, that it was sealed. Okay, And there's an aspect. Not only was the tomb sealed with a massive stone, but when it was sealed, what that also is symbolic of is that whenever uh, the, the, the Roman governor, in this case Pilate, sealed something, that meant that it had to take place and it was guarded and if, if that seal was broken, it would cost the person their lives. So this is pretty intense. So Christ is in the tomb, and now the stage is completely set for Christ's resurrection. Let's read the account now in Luke 24, 1 through 12, and I'm going to add some commentary as we read it together. But on the first day of the week, and this would be Sunday morning, at early dawn, they, and verse 10 lets us know who they is, is Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joanna. They came to the tomb bringing spices, which they had prepared. Verse 2, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord. And while they were perplexed about this, behold, two men suddenly stood near them in dazzling clothing. And I, I'm not a big fan of that word, dazzling clothing, because it doesn't do it justice. Okay? All of us can dress up for a wedding or a banquet or an affair and, you know, say that, oh, you could even make a comment. Well, you look dazzling. Okay? Right? This was radiance, their clothes. This is literally like lightning. This is 
like something that they have never seen before. And as the women were terrified and bowed their faces to the ground, the men, sent, the men said to them, why do you seek the living one among the dead? He is not here, but he has risen. Remember how he spoke to you while he was still in Galilee, saying that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and the third day rise again. And they remembered his words and returned from the tomb and reported all these things to the eleven. Now remember, there would normally be how many? Twelve, right? But Judas Iscariot, who had betrayed him, had hung himself. And there will be twelve again when we get to the account in Acts we find out that Judas is replaced by Matthias in Acts chapter 1. So they returned to the room. They reported all these things to the 11 and to all the rest. Now they were Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James. Also the other women were with them, were telling these things to the apostles. But these words appeared to them as nonsense, and they would not believe them. But Peter got up and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen wrappings only, and he went away to his home, marveling at what had happened. For those of you who have been in the church for some time, this is a very familiar yet fascinating passage. And you may have already a sense that this isn't going to be a, a typical expositional message of a single text. And to some degree, it's topical. We, we've talked about the, the topic and the doctrine of penal substitution. And now I want us to turn our attention toward the hope found in his resurrection. And to accomplish this, I want us to focus on two aspects. The reality of Christ's resurrection and the significance of Christ's resurrection. So let's start with the reality it starts with the empty tomb in our opening verses 1 and 2 of Luke 24. And if there is one thing that could have made the whole thing a sham, the account of Jesus, the message of the gospel, his discipleship, his teaching, everything. And there's one thing that could have just discounted it all. You know what it is? It wouldn't have been if his body was still in that tomb on the third day. Nothing else would matter. Nothing else would matter. And we'll, we'll talk about that at a later point. And this is what everyone who wanted him dead was hoping for. That's why they wanted it guarded. They hadn't even heard, you know, he said that he was going to destroy the temple in the presence of it and raised on the third day. And though they didn't understand, there were some, there were some who had a little bit of insight and they needed to secure that tomb. They would soon discover that killing Christ and keeping him dead are entirely two different matters. The tomb was empty. This is the first dose of reality that we must deeply breathe in. It was empty, amen? It was empty. That's got to capture your heart. He is risen. He's alive. He's alive. He's overcome death. He's alive. And the ladies who had come to minister to the corpse of Jesus, which was customary in the culture, they were bringing ointment. They were bringing perfumes. You know, there wasn't um, a, a, a strict um, 
setting like we have today where somebody would go to immediately get embalmed, preservation of the body, this was their, their way of preserving the body with ointment and covering it with scent because why? It was going to decay. It was going to smell. And so people who wanted to visit the tomb and pay final respects, they did this for that very reason. And so they show up to provide perfume, ointment, and then they see the stones removed and they go in, they see that the body is gone and they're perplexed. And in their minds, they had to be thinking that somebody came and stole the body. And so that they would properly understand, right, what had occurred, the Lord sent two angels as messengers. Angels delivered the critical message found in verses 3 through 8. And important to note is, is that these were glorified angelic beings. And, and this is why the ladies were so terrified. In other accounts, you'll note, it records for us that the guys who were out standing as guards, when they saw the radiance of the angels, what happened to them? They passed out. It says that they were, they were white. They were literally like dead men. They were in shock of just how awesome the, the appearance was. And I've shared this before, but if that's the picture of just two angels, what is, going, what is it going to be like for us when we consider and behold the full presence and reality of God in heaven? When we see the triune God face to face, surreal to think about. Now, because the angels were glorified, this also ensures the truthfulness of their message. No liars could serve as God's direct messengers from heaven. Nor can potential liars enjoy God's fully disclosed presence. And so some people may have had reason to doubt this account if it was just other people who were sharing that he has risen. But this is, this is two angelic messengers that cannot lie. And so this adds for us, as we consider God's messengers, another layer of integrity and veracity. And the angels asked the ladies, why do you seek the living one among the dead? He is not here, but he has risen. And what happens when you receive good news? What, I was uh, talking through my notes last night with Victoria, and she's always so faithful to give me some good insight and feedback. And I said, what happens when you receive good news? And she said, you're happy. <laughs> I was like, yes, it's true. There's a joy, right? When we, of course, there's joy when we receive good news. But typically, we, we want to tell somebody, right? We want to share that news with somebody, especially if something very tragic happened, and then good news comes along and covers up the tragedy, right? Then, we ha then we're compelled then we just have to get it out. We have to let someone know. And this is what is occurring with the ladies who are going to serve as the first witnesses to Christ's resurrection. And so they, they immediately go to share the stunning report of what they've just witnessed, which is the third sub-point in your outline. It's a mad dash to get to the deflated disciples. And verses 9 and 10 reveal who they are and who they told. And in the parallel account in Matthew 28... It actually says that they encountered the Lord on the way back. Matthew 28, starting in verse 8, says, And they left the tomb quickly with fear and great joy and ran to report it to the disciples. 
And behold, Jesus met them and greeted them. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshiped him. Then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and take word to my brethren to leave for Galilee. And there they will see me. Jesus knew the tendency of the human heart toward unbelief. And we've witnessed this as we're preaching through the gospel of Mark, as he's performed miracle after miracle, right? And now the greatest miracle that has ever been performed, the greatest miracle that has ever been performed is taking place. The Lord wants to give them full confidence as they go back. So not only have they seen the empty tomb, not only do they have the declaration of, of the angels, but now they have this personal encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ before they take this, this stunning report back. And this leads us to the marveling response in Luke 24, 11, and 12. The fourth subpoint under the reality of the resurrection. How would the disciples respond? Verse 11 says, when these words appeared to them as nonsense, your translation might say silly talk or idle talk. In the Greek, it's, it's, it's a fairy tale. This is not real. And they would not believe them. But Peter got up and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen wrappings, linen wrappings only. And he went away to his home, marveling at what had happened. And we know the story. But if, if you're Peter, you have to see this. This is, this is special in every way, considering all that has just transpired. I mean, you got to be there with them. And all the drama that has just unfolded during this Passion Week, right? Started with Jesus Christ on the, 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 the previous beginning of the week, the previous Sunday coming in, and the triumphal entry. And people, Palm Sunday, right, which we celebrated last Sunday, welcoming him. And then everything shifted. And, and Peter, we know, denied him three times. Who knows where Peter's heart was? Who knows where his faith is at that point? Just as it relates to, will he see Christ again? And he, he shows up and he looks and he sees that he's not there. And Peter was absolutely astonished. And here we're witnessing the progression in the reality of the resurrection. It would just keep progressing. It started with an empty tomb. It starts with the declaration of the angelic messengers. The ladies show up. They see it. They're told. They're given a critical message that he did exactly what he said he was going to do. He died for the sins according to the scriptures. He rose again. He's not here. He's alive. Then they encounter the Lord on the way back. And there's just this, this momentum that's starting to take place. It's just catapulting forward. From this event forward launched the message of the fulfilled gospel and Christ's resurrection, listen, that could never be stopped. And it's not been stopped, right? We, it's still being preached today. It is still the, 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 the momentum of Christ being resurrected and alive is being celebrated worldwide today. It's being celebrated. And the Apostle Paul records how things progressed in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 
And I want you to turn there with me because we're going to camp there for the remainder of our time, what, what little is left. In this chapter, by the way, 1 Corinthians chapter 15 is known as the resurrection chapter because it mentions the word raise or resurrection 15 times in 58 verses. And I want to start reading in verse 1 because this is going to help us transition to our second aspect, the significance of the resurrection. Why we hope there's significance. And, and it's not little significance. There's great significance. And I also want you to notice the compiling evidence of those who witness Christ's resurrection. Starting in verse 1, the Holy Spirit has the Apostle Paul record, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preach to you, which also you received, in which you also stand, by which also you are saved. If you hold fast the word which I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. For I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter, then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. They've passed away. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. I did the math for you, just from what I could understand in this passage. Christ appeared to, to over 586 people. So we, we know that, and I'll tell you how I got to that number, and, and this is just the, this is the minimum, right? He says that he appeared to 500 people all at one time. It says also that he appeared to the apostles. And Matthias would have to, if he was going to replace Judas, would have, have, to, have to have witnessed the resurrection. So that means, right, we know that that's the only way that he could be an apostle. So there is 12. So we take 500, and then we got 12. Okay? And then it says they appeared to all the apostles, and we know that there were 70 that were sent out, right, who were sent ones from the Lord Jesus Christ during the apostolic ministry, 70 plus 12, 82, we're at 582. And then we take into an account the ladies that we already saw in our account, Mary Magdalene, Mary, mother of James, okay, and also Joanna. So there's three right there, 585. And then we got the Apostle Paul, 586. But we know that it's much more than that. But let's just think about this for a moment. I mean, you want to be effective in a court of law today? And you're trying to bear witness to what is the truth? You're in pretty good shape if you can have several witnesses. That's ideal. How about 586? That's... That's the testimony of the resurrection. That's the surety of the resurrection that we need to see. And so now that we've reflected on the hope and the reality of Christ's resurrection, let us consider its significance. Why should the resurrection of Jesus Christ be significant to you? How should it impact you? And there are several reasons why it's important, but I wanted to give you just as we close some of the bigger ones. First, Christ's resurrection in Christianity. 
Without Christ's resurrection, there would be no Christianity and there would be no hope. That's pretty significant, wouldn't you say? Yeah, I think we, we all get that. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul goes on to share six disastrous consequences if there were no resurrection. And we'll just survey these with our eyes as we look at it together in Luke 15. Look at verse 14. It says, and if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. It's senseless. It's meaningless. That verse continues. Second, Paul adds at the end that faith in Christ would be useless. Third, look at verse 15. All the witnesses and preachers of the resurrection would be liars. Fourth, verse 17. No one would be redeemed from sin. Without the resurrection, nobody could be saved. It's impossible. If he didn't overcome death, then we would still owe that penalty. Fifth, verse 18, all former believers would have perished. And lastly, verse 19 shares that Christians would be the most pitied people on earth. Right? Those are disastrous. But you know what? He is risen, isn't he? He is alive. He has overcome death. And that is what we preach. That is what we celebrate. That's our blessed hope. That's our assurance. And that's the great triumphal song that every born-again person is able to sing in their heart. And even goes down to what Paul is recording in verse 55. Oh, death, death, where's your sting? Death, where is your victory? Right? You got nothing on us now. Second, Christ's resurrection and the power of God. Christ's resurrection witnesses to the, the immense power of God himself. To believe in the resurrection is to believe in God. If God exists and if he created the universe and has power over it, he has power to raise the dead. And if he does not have such power, and that is our condition, right? That's our desperate and dark condition. Then he wouldn't be worthy of our faith and worship. Only he who created life can resurrect it after death. Only he can reverse the curse of sin, which is death itself. And only he can remove that sting that is the death and the victory that belongs to the grave. In resurrecting Jesus from the grave, God displays his omnipotent power and reminds us of his absolute sovereignty over life and death. Third, Christ's resurrection ensures that we will receive perfect resurrection bodies as well. Now I know I got your attention, right? This is, but this is deeply personal, as it should be. The resurrection of Jesus is a testimony to the resurrection of believers. This is a major tenet of the Christian faith. In fact, Christianity is the only religion which possesses a founder who has transcended death itself and who promises that his followers will also transcend death. And this is what we're celebrating, of course, today. All other religions were founded by men and prophets whose end was the grave. They had no power to overcome death. You've seen that picture maybe even on a Facebook or a, on, uh, online posted somewhere where the guy's talking about which road to take on the, the path of religion. And he, he comes to a crossroad. One guy's alive. The other guy's dead. He said it makes it pretty easy which, which, which path you're going to go, right? He's alive. He's alive. But the other religions of the world have no answer for death. In fact, 
interesting enough, we see a lot of them even promoting death, right? Nation of Islam die and receive a hundred virgins. Foolishness. And the New Testament several times connects Jesus' bodily, physical resurrection with the final bodily resurrection of all who believe in him. 1 Corinthians 6.14 says, and God, these are just, I want to encourage you. I want you to walk out of here with hope in your soul this morning. 1 Corinthians 6.14 says, and God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Similarly, 2 Corinthians 4.14 says, He who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. And Paul was writing to the Corinthians. And then we have the most extensive discussion in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and, and verses 12 through 58. But the verse that I would draw your attention to is in verse 20 where Paul says that Christ is the first fruits of of those who have fallen asleep. So first fruits, what's that all about? And he's using this agricultural metaphor. And so what they would do when they presented at the feast, right? They would, they would their first fruits, that which was from the crop, they would offer that which came. But the thing that we have to understand is the, the, the first fruits also indicated what the rest of the crop was going to look like, right? And so describing Christ as the first fruits, describing him as resurrected. When, when we're talking about believers, us being the first fruits, it, we are going to be raised just like he was. The Bible doesn't indicate, some of you might just be curious about this on a personal note, whether we're going to retain, you know, Jesus, when he appeared, he had his scars, right? That memorialized his, his suffering and death. The Bible doesn't indicate that that's going to be true of us. You might be curious of, of that. I've, I've, foot, my football days, I've had nine surgeries. I got a major scar from a double fusion on my neck right here, double fusion on my back, right? And it doesn't say whether we're going to have anything. My, my inclination is to say that we won't. And you want to know why? Because Isaiah 65, starting in verse 17, it says, the former things will remember no more. So if you suffered a great tragedy, right, and and you have a major scar or um, whatever the case might be, I just thought you might be interested in that because of Jesus and his scars. But the Bible does say that our bodies will be made perfect, incorruptible, raised in glory, will be fully healed, made perfect, whole bodies fitted for all eternity. Fourth and finally, Christ's resurrection is a motivating force for our lives now. And this has got to capture us, church. Paul shares that the resurrection has application to our faithfulness and obedience to God in this life. At the end of the resurrection chapter, and you can look down to the final verse of 1 Corinthians 15, Paul concludes by exhorting his readers with this final verse. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, be immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. It is because Christ is raised from the dead. We too shall be raised from the dead. That we should, should continue to walk in rock-solid faith and always at the task of 
of being in action, that there would be feet on our faith, that we would be honoring him with our lives. We glorify him, right, by clinging to the commands of Scripture, that as we are transformed in our repentance, those commands push us towards Christ-likeness. They drive us, they excel us to Christ-likeness. We're motivated by the gospel which promises resurrection life and we're also motivated by the gospel that provides resurrection power to embrace a heart of repentance and a relentless pursuit of holiness all for his glory. And that same resurrection power that dwells within us helps us to fulfill God's will. 1 Corinthians 15, 58 helps you and I see how everything that we do here on earth as we evangelize and witness to other people, as we make disciples, that all of it has eternal significance. Every single matter has eternal significance. And that we'll be rewarded for that. What a blessing. And we'll be able to, to cast those crowns back at his feet for the grace that works within us. It's powerful. It's powerful. All who believe are going to be raised on the day when Christ returns and we're going to live with him and with each other forever. But if you're here today and you haven't trusted in Jesus Christ as your suffering substitute, if you have yet to turn to him and trust in him as your suffering substitute, you cannot be raised to eternal life. You will pay the consequence. You will pay the penalty for your sin. And so let today be the day of salvation. Let his word be found true and let every man be found a liar. Let them know in, in the deep recesses of the heart and answer that question that every single one of us must answer. What can we do in order to be made right before a perfectly holy and righteous God? We must repent of our unbelief in our sin, and we must turn and trust completely in Christ as our Savior and Lord. And when you do that, my friend, you know what happens? The Bible says that your life starts all over, that you will be born again. You will be born again with new desires, new hopes. Life will take on new meaning. No more worries about what's going to happen to me after I die. You will be secure in his grip. You will be secure for his purposes. The resurrection is the triumphant and glorious victory for every believer. Jesus Christ died, was buried, rose the third day according to the scripture, and he's coming again. And for those who have passed away, they'll be raised. For those of us who are alive, we'll get glorified bodies immediately. And this is why the resurrection is so important to salvation. It, it, it demonstrates that God accepted us on behalf of Christ's sacrifice. It proves that God has the power to raise us from the dead. It guarantees that those who believe in Christ will not remain dead, but will be re resurrected to eternal life. And that is our blessed hope. That is our blessed hope that we celebrate on this momentous day. Amen, church? Amen. All right, I hope your hearts are encouraged he is risen. I'm going to say he is risen, and you're going to say he is risen indeed. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Let's pray.